Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all his medical stories. Last week, we took a bit of a break from our chronological narrative to talk about the portrayal of organ transplants and donation in popular culture. Yeah. This week, we are going to head back into Ari's story. We already talked about traveling with the home hemo machine to check out law schools that I was thinking about attending, and that was all in preparation for eventually leaving Seattle and moving to a new city. Right. Before we leave Seattle, I think we should talk about one last big health-related thing that happened while we were there. Yeah. While you were in Seattle doing dialysis, Mm -hmm. you were on the kidney transplant list. Right. Yes. And you didn't have a pager or anything. It was just like, we're going to call your regular phone if anything came up. Yes. That's how I believe it works now, unless you don't have a cell phone or you don't want to use your cell phone for that. They... They'll give you a pager. But yeah, otherwise, they kind of assume, well, if you got a phone, let's use that because you're paying for it. So I'm going to ask you a very leading question. Okay. Did you ever get a call? Um, yes. Yes, I did. So I was registered with the Seattle area list. Again, everybody calls it a list, even though we all know it's not really quite exactly totally a list. And I basically kind of assumed it was never going to happen. Why? Well, (laughs) essentially because I wanted to set my expectations low, because if I was always ready for it to happen, I was going to be disappointed daily or weekly. And also, I have a rare blood type. I have B positive, which is about 8% of the population. And I'd also had two previous transplants, which makes your body kind of more sensitized and not as great a candidate for another transplant. And so that does give you a couple of extra points on the list to compensate for that, but still, it means that when it comes down to that very important cross-match, you're more likely to not be eligible, to reject the potential kidney. And I just want to clarify a little bit, what you're talking about by saying sensitized is kind of as a result of having two different foreign kidneys put in your body, your Mm -hmm. immune system has become a little bit more active, a little more like, hey, hey, that's not supposed to be there. And might be more likely to do that to a new transplant. Yeah, you gain and create more antibodies when you have somebody else's organ in your body. I think, and I please don't quote me on this because I actually might be totally wrong about this, but I think sometimes you actually gain antibodies that sort of come with the kidney. But I definitely know that you are likely to create more antibodies because you have this extra thing in you and your body kind of is trying to figure everything out. Right. And that's how the immune system typically works for you. It learns, right? So that's why, oh, I've had chicken pox before. I know how to get rid of it. This is not exactly the same thing, but it's like, oh, I've had this foreign kidney thing before. I'm going to, I'm really going to get rid of it this time. Yeah, kind of. But because it's a more complex thing than just a virus, then you create lots of different kinds of antibodies, generally specific to that organ. And once that organ fails or once that organ is actually removed from your body, as has happened to me, the antibodies still stick around. Your body still has that immune memory. And admittedly, I had had that very special mad science thing that removes some of my immune memory, but still, you know, they can test those kinds of things. I was what they call highly sensitized. So I just kind of assumed I wasn't going to get a call, but 
you want to get on as early as possible in the hopes that you can and that you gain time points and things like that on the list. Right. And this is one of the irritating ironies of your health is that <laughs> with a body where so many things go wrong, so much of your own genetics is working against you, so many times when a doctor says, oh, only in small cases will right. that be a side effect. It happens to you. And the one thing that you've got working really great, it seems, mm -hmm. is an immune system. Yeah. Yeah, it works pretty well. <laughs> yeah, we can't just switch off aspects of that. We have to use drugs just like everybody else. So I was going along assuming that I wasn't going to get that call. In addition to sort of just lowering my expectations so I wasn't constantly disappointed, it's the kind of thing where when I was very first on the list at that point, a number of years before, I got really nervous about in some ways even leaving the house or going out with other people, which wasn't a common thing unless I was with my parents. Like, say to a movie, I would think, well, I'm- What if they call? Right. I'm paying eight bucks, <laughs> which I can only dream about now, but you know, I'm paying- money to sit and see this movie and what if my pager goes off and I would have to break social conventions and I would have to get up and leave or I would have to get out my pager and look at it and recognize oh no I need to get up and leave or then once I had a phone like be that rude person in the theater looking at my phone and you know I don't want to do that this actually you know we were talking about pop culture last week this brings to mind there was around this time while I was waiting on the list the maybe the first time and or the second time, and I had a pager or a phone, I was watching some late night comedy special, and this comedian was talking about sort of people getting up and leaving and some other things, and he started making jokes about like, you know, what's so important that you'd have to get up? And he said, you know, are you an emergency room doctor on call? Okay, maybe. And then he went into this kind of lengthy riff about like, oh, sure, someone's sitting there with their kidney pager. And it was very funny. And then he kind of did this secondary level commentary on it because he had the presence of his mother was common in his comedy, sort of commenting on what he said and scolding him for all the terrible things he said. And so then she, in his voice, started talking about like, no, they could be sitting right there right now with their pager. And it was funny, but I was like, no, but I am. I mean, I'm not <laughs> in his show, but I it played to sort of unintentionally on his part, it played to that that fear that I really had that, well, I don't want to go out and be at a comedy club like I would ever have done that, but be somewhere and have to be the rude person who's like, sorry, sorry, sorry. Leave kidney. the opera. Yeah, yeah, leave the opera or a play or or a movie or a dinner reservation or something like that. And, you know, the the fact is everybody would understand it is actually time sensitive and important, but I had to kind of get over that. And the way I got over that was by saying, it's not going to happen. And that made it easier because it basically doesn't happen. It's going to happen probably once and then you're good. And I think they told us in Seattle that the average wait time was something like eight years. Right. It was very, very long for my blood type. And we were in Seattle for three years. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of thinking, okay, this is a long way off. Right. Dialysis yeah. is the norm. Mm -hmm. And that kind of relates to what we've been talking about, that kind of like, let's not try to plan life for when the awesome thing happens. Right. Let's try to live as best we can within our circumstances as they exist right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So when we were in Seattle, I was receiving a, a version of disability income from the government. And that was very small, but one of the requirements for that program was that I needed to attend basically a jobs program. And it was sort of training slash assistance in finding a job for people with disabilities. And I was kind of into that. I did not want to be hanging out at home unless there was some cool way I could be making scads and scads of money just sitting at home. There wasn't. <laughs> so I went to these programs and that was a very odd experience because I, even at that point, was not used to thinking of myself as disabled. And I was with a bunch of people who often were used to thinking of themselves as disabled. And in a couple of cases were more like me, like had been going along fine, had certain assumptions about how they were doing, how life was going, and then something came up. But most of the people there had some kind of generally serious, often cognitive disability, sometimes developmental, sometimes other things, and were frequently in far more challenging situations than I was. I remember being at one of these sort of seminar slash classes slash support group things that we went to, and we were talking about something pretty straightforward, like putting your resume together. And a young woman raised her hand to ask a question, and she said, yeah, so what do you do if like your stepfather is intercepting your checks and then they're cashing them and saying they're going to give you some of the money, but then they never oh, really man. do? And she had this really elaborate question that pretty clearly laid out two things. One, she didn't really understand how the system worked. And two, she was being taken serious advantage of, if not actually defrauded by members of her family through this program. And everybody in the room was like, that sounds bad. I don't know what to do. And the people running the conference realized uh, this is a much more serious question. And also, it doesn't have anything to do with special interests that you put on your resume or whatever it was that we were actually talking about. So it was an interesting experience. And I don't really have a lot of specific memories other than that and a couple of other things from that. They were Largely a nice thing to go to because I got out of the house and ultimately pretty fruitless. I never had any job leads that developed because of that. But one time I was in one of these seminars and we were sitting there again talking about probably wasn't resumes. Maybe it was interviewing techniques or something. And, you know, I was required by I guess law or statute or something to be there for the whole time and they took attendance and things. It was part of this program in order to get money that you and I needed to live. And we were, you were not supposed to leave in the middle and things like that. And my phone started ringing. It was on silent, but you know, I glanced at it surreptitiously and recognized the number as maybe being from the University of Washington Medical Center. And I thought, eh, that's probably just an appointment thing. Never mind. So I, you know, ignored call. And then three minutes later, it started ringing again, and I went, uh, maybe, I don't know, something went wrong. And so I ignored it again, thinking, this can't be right. And plus, you know, I don't want to break these social conventions, and I have all these rules that say I'm supposed to be here. So then, of course, it rang, rang again, and I felt really awkward, and I had to, like, run out of the room, and I answered the phone. And it was one of the nurses at the transplant office, and she confirmed my, all of my ID. Usually it was like, oh, hey, Aaron, we've got an appointment for you. And instead... 
it was a really formal process and a formal call that I had never gotten before. And she confirmed my first, middle, and last name, my birth date, my social security number, probably where I was born, a few other things. And then she said, okay, so there is a donor kidney that is available, and we're running Krauss matches right now, and you are one of two people that this kidney might go to. And like the bottom kind of dropped out of my world. On the one hand, I was thrilled and kind of didn't even know how to deal with that. Like, oh my goodness, I could get this kidney. And on the other hand, I was like, well, one out of two. Flip a coin. Yeah. Flip a coin. And there was this other aspect too, where like, well, if I get it, that means somebody else doesn't. And they're going through all the things they're going through. And also, you know, flip a coin. I might not get it. And if I don't, they've told me that I almost did, and this could be terrible. And so I was trying to deal with all those emotions in about a fraction of a second, <laughs> approximately. And it was really hard and also like, well, I have to go back into that program because if I don't get this kitty, I have to still be here. It was a really weird eight-minute conversation. So the way they left it was, we will call you back. You know, we're going to keep you updated. We're going to let you know what happens, but basically answer your phone for the rest of the day. Don't go anywhere without your phone. Don't be far from transportation or from the hospital because if you're going to get this kidney, you're, we're going to need you at the hospital within probably an hour, I think they said, but it might have even been less time than that. Within an hour of them calling you. Right. Because they were doing this testing and they said it would take hours. Right. But they weren't sure how many hours and things. That would have been at about 10 a.m. that day. And so then I I thanked them very much. Um, you know, we confirmed all the things we needed to confirm. And I went back into this meeting and had to try to pay attention um, for another hour, hour 15 minutes while my brain was racing like, what does this mean? What do I need to pack? What do I need to do? Before I went back into the meeting, of course, I called you and said, I don't have any time, but this just happened and here's all the things we need to know. So I guess cancel your plans, kind of. Um, that's a weird thing because it's like on a 50% chance, cancel your plans. And that's what they basically told me. Like, don't do anything else today. Just sit by the phone and be ready to drop everything. And also that might not happen. Um, so I told you that kind of threw your world into tumult as well, and then went back to this meeting trying to pay attention to very important details of how to interview as a person with a disability. And I went back to, I had a full day of classes. Yeah. So I just left my phone on because I was also the backup phone number that we gave them. If you can't reach Ari, call me and I'll go get him. Right. So I had my phone on all day too, and then got back to the apartment as soon as possible. And so then we sat around all day and we waited. I think we watched a bunch of TV. I think that we didn't watch anything we cared about, though, because it was kind of we needed to do yeah. something to fill time, but we couldn't concentrate on anything. Right. And we had the volume turned down and both of our phones on the loudest setting and on vibrate <laughs> yeah. and sitting in our laps. Yeah. And we didn't tell anybody that this was happening. Right. I didn't want to put anybody else in this kind of panic unless it was going to actually happen, which I think was the right choice because like we were very tense, hoping that it would happen, but also aware that it totally might not. And 
say calling my parents wouldn't have made us less tense. <laughs> it just would have made more people in the world tense and anxious. And so hours and hours and hours went by. And I think eventually we just said, okay, well, I guess we better eat dinner. And we did that kind of late because we'd been delaying that because, okay, if it's a surgery, you know, it just seemed like, well, it's not going to happen. I think it's possible that we actually talk to them sometime in the evening for an update. Yeah, eventually I called them and I said, hey, it just seems like it's been a long time. Right. And they said, yes, we're still doing the tests, which seemed really weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I still don't really know what's up with that. That still seems really unusual to me. Eventually, like really, really late, I think, finally, I went to bed. Mm-hmm. Around, uh, after midnight. After midnight. And then I was, I think, asleep for this, but they did eventually call your phone. Yeah. Uh, well, my phone rang next to me when I, I was, I fell asleep eventually, I guess, around like 3 or 4 a.m. Yeah. And they said that it wasn't a match. <laughs> right. This is so silly because I know how this story turns out, but even... Talking about it right now, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really, really weird, tough day. And then the next day, I had to get up super early and go to dialysis at the center, like usual. And that was tough. On the one hand, my life hadn't changed, so kind of nothing gained, nothing lost. But on the other hand... I had had this whole day where maybe it was about to be way better. Yeah. And there was this possibility of, I don't know, of, of um, well, when I went back on dialysis and we moved to Seattle, and I know we talked about this before, but there was an aspect where I had kind of given up on things. I kind of thought, well, average wait time is eight years. That's a really long time. I'm just disabled now. Can't really do anything. This is my life. I'm on in-center dialysis because I hadn't yet heard of home hemo. I'm going to go to this program and eventually I will find some not particularly satisfying job, but it will get me out of the house. It'll be a thing that I do that'll be some slight distraction. I'll help contribute to the household in that way. And I will be a disabled person. And if and when I can, maybe if I feel better, I can do some of the teaching really, really occasionally that I would really like to do, some marching band coaching, maybe get some private students, something. But I'm going to have this sort of, I don't know, lesser life is probably what I would have considered it at the time. Like, well, this is the best I can do, and I'm not happy with it, but I... I'm going to have to accept that. And that's that's where I was. And in the back of my head, though, there was this, but maybe I could get a transplant sooner and all that would go away. And on that one day, it was a possibility that I kind of thought wasn't going to happen, but maybe could. And it just tumbled back and forth and back and forth between being really excited, like, I'm going to have a transplant. Oh, but probably not. And I think that affected you in a similar way. Um, it was a hard day. And then the days and weeks after that were really hard because then it was brutally back to the grind without that, like, that glimmer of hope had just been like, oops, switched off. And then it was back to, okay, now it's back to eight years again. Maybe that'll happen again, but probably not. It was really tough. Yeah. And, um, I, I remember this particular detail because, uh, a friend of mine reminded me of it 
a little while ago, the next day we went to a wedding. <laughs> Was that really the next day? Yeah, and we hadn't told anybody yet because we hadn't told anybody when we were preparing and then it was um a really really good friend of mine's wedding the next day and it was right. a courthouse wedding we were one of three witnesses there mm -hmm. you and i were one and two yeah and we still kind of hadn't told anybody it was a very bifurcated thing mm -hmm. and it's especially weird because i remember being at that wedding for my dear friend and being really really happy oh yeah and i also remember this separate event which until she reminded me later, like, oh, yeah, you told me a couple of days later that this had happened and I had no idea at the time. Right. It's like there were parallel universes, right? Because I remember that wedding being mm -hmm. very, very happy. Like yeah. I just flipped a switch mm -hmm. and then this other thing was happening. Yeah, I did not remember those were even close together at all. That's, <laughs> that's really weird. It was a strange time, to say the least. And they never called me again while we were in Seattle. So... Now we're going to switch gears. That was the end of our Seattle experience. Mm -hmm. And I decided to go to Columbia Law School, so we needed to move to New York. You did? Um, <laughs> yes. So we started planning that, I want to say, around May. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of details to take care of, obviously. Although I will say that um, Columbia is pretty good, at least the law school is pretty good about setting up a lot of stuff for you in advance. Yeah, I should talk a little bit about that. Yeah. One of the things that Columbia gives to students, because rents in New York are high, <laughs> they were so high that we, when we started doing our initial research, we just had a laughing fit about what we were going to have to pay. Yeah, I, it was, I don't know, a factor of three or four or five times how much we paid. And it at, once you start talking about rents like that, with I think I said, and you said, like it might as well be a million dollars a day. For the realistic ability of us to pay, yeah. Right, because they start throwing around numbers like, well, this much a month versus that much a month. And I'm like, I, I don't know. One of those is five times as much as we pay a month here in Seattle, and the other one is four times as much. How do we pay for that? You say we can. I don't know. So one of the things Columbia does is they offer students subsidized housing. Right. So they own several buildings around the campus, or mm -hmm. they own apartments in those buildings, and they lease them to students for much, much lower than the going rate. Right. So I signed up for that. And then they asked, so do you have anything in particular that you need? <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. And so I wrote to them and said, well, my partner is disabled and he's on dialysis. So we would like to have an apartment either if we're on the first floor, it's fine. But if we're not... We need to have an elevator. Right, for all the supplies. He can't have he can't be walking up on days that he's exhausted. Right. And we will be doing home dialysis and have our supplies delivered monthly, which means there needs to be enough extra square feet in this apartment for us to live and have a month's worth of dialysis supplies yeah. in the apartment with us. And of course the one thing that apartments in New York don't have Right. Is a ton of extra storage space. Right. And you weren't saying like, I really like to have extra closets because it wasn't about closets. It's actual floor space that you need. And we measured, right? Mm -hmm. We got a monthly delivery. We measured the actual floor space taken up by these dozens and dozens of boxes that we needed. Yeah. They also have regulations about how many you can stack on top of each other. There's like a maximum. If I recall, it's about eight, which means you can actually kind of measure floor space that you need. 
Right. So we did that and I sent them the form, which I was just wondering, how, how is this even going to work? Yeah. And then the woman at the housing department got back to me and said, we will find you a place. Yeah. It was really sweet. And that apartment that they did find us mm-hmm. worked out great. Yeah, it did. <laughs> so that was a long process starting in, like we said, I think May or so. Then there was also the process of saying, okay, so I'm on Home Hemo. I'm going to be transferring to this location. And, you know, we were loving Home Hemo, relatively speaking. But while it was fairly popular within a small set of popular in Seattle. Famous among 200 people. That's right. um, It was not yet super widespread in terms of training centers. And that's important because... While the company had really done a good job of working out like supply lines to deliver supplies, you have to have a home base training center contact person. Right. You need the nurses to call if something happens. Yeah. You need a team that you're sending all of your numbers to because they're tracking you medically, how the dialysis is going, how your body's doing. Yeah. Uh, This is beyond just having a local nephrologist who... Obviously, you want to kind of understand how home hemo works. You also need this center that, like you just said, that you send your numbers to, that is familiar with the process, that understands how the machine works so that they can help you with things. You need a point person, basically, who coordinates with the company when necessary. And so we had this moment where we were going along, okay, and then I'll do this in New York, and then I'll do this in New York. And then there was sort of like this needle scratch moment, like, whoa, wait a minute. Does anybody do that in New York? And at the time, I think one center had just started doing it. And that was at Columbia Medical Center, which is a really, really large hospital in New York. It's a big deal school. It's uh, sometimes called Columbia Presbyterian. Sometimes it's called Wild Cornell. It's the medical school for Columbia and for Cornell. It's a big deal. So I was glad of that because it meant, okay, I'll be getting probably very good care because I got to go there. Sorry. And um, also, fortunately, they took the insurance that I had at that time. So we called them up. And I should mention that because it's a large hospital, they actually had more than one dialysis unit. They had inpatient dialysis, which is for extremely sick people who are in the hospital for a variety of reasons, maybe related to kidneys, maybe related to something else, but who also, or as part of their regular thing that they're there for, need dialysis. And then they have an outpatient dialysis unit. And this was the outpatient dialysis unit, which is huge. Uh, it's still the largest dialysis unit I have ever visited. It's um, two stories and just this giant, like it felt like I was in a gymnasium. I would estimate there were probably about 100 chairs. I might be wrong, but an army of nurses and techs and kind of really pretty, like giant glass windows and, and stuff. It's a, it's a really big space. And then on the second floor, overlooking it like some kind of mad scientist overlords is where... Or like the special box in a football stadium. Yeah, 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 is where the doctor's offices are and you visit them up there. Also, that is one of the places where, because they moved it around, where the home hemo training unit is. So I called them up and they were so stoked because I said, hi, I'm Aaron Deckard. Um, I'm going to be moving to the area from Seattle and I've been doing home hemo using this machine here. And 
it's my understanding that you do that there and I need to sort of switch to your training unit. And they went, oh, that's so great. Yes, we've been just starting that up. It's so cool. You'll be our second patient. And I had this huge hesitation, like, I don't want to be somebody's second patient. I want to be somebody's like three millionth patient. I want you to know what you're doing so cold that nothing can go wrong. But then the other part of me was like, ooh, look at me, cutting edge. So, um, of course, I said yes, because <laughs> that was the only place I could do this. And I was not going back to in-center, especially given at the time my immense hesitations and anxieties about moving to this giant crazy city that I wasn't ever possibly going to get used to. So we signed up for that and we kind of started getting registered with them. That took a long time. Not surprisingly, just because we needed to, there were so many things to coordinate. And we did all this without going there. Right. Because one of the things that is relevant for this story is that to get to New York to ship all the stuff that we were going to ship, mostly we sold all of our furniture and possessions. Mm -hmm. And so deposits, first and last month's rent. Yeah transit to New York on the plane tickets, we were kind of down to our last dime just to get everything there so that I could start law school and then we could finally get my student aid money. Right. It was a very shoestring operation for both of us. So um, there was no going back and forth to meet the doctors in person or any yeah. of that. Yeah, because one of the first questions they asked was, okay, when are you going to come visit? And I went, um, the day we move, would that be good? Because that's when I can do that. And they were like, oh, no, that won't work, seriously. And I said, no, seriously. You know, I'm disabled. My partner is, like, just finishing her undergrad, and we're basically running out of money in order to make it to New York and try to survive until she gets her first uh, financial aid payments. And also, they've been throwing these crazy million-dollar numbers at us for apartment rents. Have you heard that apartments are expensive in New York? And they laughed and said, okay, but when are you going to visit? And we kind of went around and around in that for a while. And then they finally accepted that I really wasn't going to be there and that maybe we could figure this out over the phone. I probably had to get my doctor in Seattle involved in that a little bit, sort of as a recommendation from him and my training nurse in Seattle to say, Ari knows what he's doing. He's actually really good at this. Um, he might know more than you do if he's your second patient. And so it'll be okay. And so they finally, they accepted that. And that's not to like demonize them in any way. They were going through their uh, very understandable procedures for safety and other reasons, you know? Right. Doing dialysis at home is a complex, yeah. in-depth, technical endeavor. And for somebody to say, oh, I know how to do it. It's fine. You've never met me, but sight unseen, we're going to do this. Right. You don't just take that on faith as a, no. as a medical professional who's charged with their care. Exactly, exactly. So during this time also, that's when my mother had her transplant. So we went down from Seattle to be with her and my family and be what help we could be, uh, like we discussed before. And then we went back to Seattle for about a week or so to get rid of everything and put everything in boxes and ship it. That's a great thing about home hemo. <laughs> Those dialysis boxes are these perfect little squares. And yeah. usually we've been folding them up and putting them out for recycling. But in the months before the move, we just saved them and packed all of our possessions in incredibly uniform little boxes. Right. That was very nice. And all of our boxes were very recognizable because they looked identical and kind of unique to us. So then we flew out. So we left our apartment in Seattle, gave the landlord the keys, <laughs> Drove down to 
Portland to have one last kind of dinner with our family. Right. And then hopped on the red-eye flight from Portland to New York. All our belongings that we were going to keep shipped to New York ahead of time and waiting with the very nice lady in the housing office. Yeah. And we got off the plane with our suitcases and backpacks crammed full with everything we could and went directly from the airport to the hospital because it was now early morning in New York when we yeah. arrived so that you could meet your doctors and dialysis team. Yeah. Um, that was kind of insane. <laughs> I'm still kind of surprised that we made that work, but that was the only way it was going to work. So we had to go way uptown because Columbia's in Washington Heights, which if you know New York is the like the northern end of Manhattan right before you get to the Bronx. Columbia Hospital. Columbia University is more southern, just to clarify. Right. Yeah, the Columbia University Medical Center is way up there. Columbia itself is at 116th. So we had to like take a subway, which we had done when we visited, but we had all this stuff with us. And then we had to find our way to the center, which was tricky because our idea of how directions worked and my nurse's idea of how directions worked seemed to be different. We eventually figured that out. We were trying to use like north and south and she was trying to use uptown and downtown and you would think those would line up, but there was a lot of confusion. We were new. We were very, very new. <laughs> so eventually we got there and we met the people we needed to meet. We were there for a long time because the first thing we needed to do was dialyze me. And basically, it was one of a number of appointments that I had with them where I demonstrated over the course of, I think, a week or maybe two, I know everything there is to know about this machine that I need to know. There were some actual like quizzes I took on the manual. She ran me through some of the tests that I had had to do back in Seattle, like, oh, okay, this happens and this happens and this error is showing on the machine. What do you do? You know, and like solve this problem in the moment. And that hadn't quite happened yet. On this first day, we went in and I put myself on the machine and that was good. And so we met her and kind of got things established and planned some future times. I it, The next day, for instance, that we were going to see them. And I also want to say, since we're talking about this yeah. new New York dialysis nurse that you had, I love every person on your team mm -hmm. from Columbia, and I really, really liked her. Mm -hmm. She was this, I think, like four feet tall mm -hmm. woman, but she was that kind of person who, if she wants to be, she's the tallest person there. Mm -hmm. And she was really, really kind of had that initiative. Like you could tell she was really excited about her second ever patient in this yeah. unit. And you were under her charge now and they were going to have like, even if they were just starting, they were going to do everything right. This was going to be the world-class home dialysis experience. And yeah. While you were on the machine after, because after you get everything set up, there's not a lot to do while you're on the machine. Right. It's just dialysis. So you were sitting there and then she was talking to us about, okay, so now that you live in New York, I got to tell you all the stuff uh -huh. about city living. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she went deep, deep into all kinds of things that we were going, uh-oh, about a little bit. Um, she was a grandmother. She'd been a nurse forever. She had done a lot of different things, um, including dialysis. And she was one of those people who was kind of a, a lifelong learner and ambitious in a certain way where she had heard about this and said, let's bring this to New York. Let me, you know, it was her initiative that they had followed to create this home dialysis unit. 
and she was heading it up and she still didn't know everything yet, but she was gonna. And eventually she really did. She knew tons of stuff and was great. But yeah, we were definitely the second patient and you could tell. Uh, she, not only because she was enthusiastic, but because they were still kind of getting used to how they were doing training and how it was working. And there was in fact a time when my blood pressure dropped like two or three days in and like I knew what to do and you kind of knew what to do, but we weren't expecting it. And so because we were in a dialysis unit, we didn't quite do the thing that we knew how to do. And so right there was that moment of hesitation, right? Like, oh, we shouldn't jump in because kind of out of politeness, we don't want to supersede your nurse who's in charge of the situation. Right. But she had stepped out. And so you went quickly to see if you could find her and you couldn't. And so you grabbed uh, one of the techs from the floor who came in and did what you do with a regular hemodialysis machine, which doesn't work with this kind of hemo machine. In in terms of pushing fluids, she basically stopped the machine and tried to just push saline, which doesn't work because the machine itself is the thing, only thing that can push the saline. Yeah, and it was that weird situation where if we had just done right, what we needed we to do, it would have been fine. But we had that like, oh, we can't step on anyone's toes here. <laughs> we should. Yeah. So then our nurse quickly came back in that situation, noticed what had happened, and we told them, and she recognized something's not quite right here. And we were able to explain, well, this is what's supposed to happen, but we did this because we didn't want to leave you out of the loop. And that's the wrong thing because of this, this, and this. And she said, oh, of course, that's right. I had read about that, sort of. And so then she fixed it. But I guess the main reason I was sort of telling that little episode is because the rest of the staff didn't yet know that this machine was any different. They, it was brand new to everybody. And so we helped them learn some things, but I keep kind of getting ahead of myself. So that day we met them and we dialyzed for the first time in that room, in that center and found our way there. And then we got off the machine and said, so wonderful to meet you. See you tomorrow. And we took all of our stuff and went down to the Columbia Housing Office. This is still weird to me thinking about how this worked. We got off a plane with very little sleep, went to dialysis, then we went to the housing office and they said, okay, as we've told you in our conversations, we have two apartments for you to look at that we think would work within your price range. And for us, price range was in, you know, quotes. <laughs> um, so we saw both of these places and the first one, we saw it was pretty small. I, it was definitely the cheaper one. But we I remember us looking at it and going, okay, I think this could work, but it would be a real challenge. But all right, hope the next one's better. And then we went to the next one, and it was great. It was bigger. The, so the space was good. The way the space was laid out was far more conducive, not just to dialysis, but to living the way we kind of wanted to live. Right, because wherever the chair is that you're doing dialysis and the machine you need that drainage line to go to the sink. Mm -hmm. So you've got to think about sink to living room distance. Yeah, it's about 20 feet long maximum. And there's not really a way to extend the length. So it's not like they, they'll send you an extra long tube. You get the kind you get. So this was much more conveniently located there. It also had, because it was one of those famous pre-war buildings, the largest bathroom that we had seen. It's the largest home bathroom I've ever seen in the eight years we've lived in New York City. Definitely in New York. 
bathrooms are not that large. And I think that's why they were using it for an apartment they reserved for disabled residents right. is because there was more maneuverability in the bathroom and more space. Yeah, with the exception of the weird little lip getting into the bathroom. If you were in a wheelchair, you could have used that bathroom pretty easily. They would have had to install railings, but they could have. It was good. It was a really cool apartment, and we were ridiculously lucky as first-time emigres to New York to get such an apartment, and especially with the subsidizing. So we said this one, and they said, okay, you live here now. (laughs) And we signed a lot of paperwork with a lot of scary numbers on it. So then, having selected the better apartment and signed our lives away, we had to get some kind of furniture. Right. What we had was an air mattress to camp in the apartment. We had not shipped any furniture to New York because that would be ridiculously expensive. Yeah. It's cheaper, especially with the kind of furniture we were going to buy, to (laughs) buy (laughs) cheap furniture on location. Yeah, it definitely, that had been our plan, and it made sense, and it did save us some money. Maybe we had a pillow or two pillows? Right, we'd thrown them in the suitcase. Right, that's right. So we had an air mattress, we had two pillows, and ourselves. Most of our clothes even were being shipped. So <laughs> there we were. I had dialyzed that day. I was feeling a little out of it. We had just gone through the um, emotional roller coaster of signing for an apartment that we had just seen and then we needed to get one piece of furniture right and we were down to our last couple hundred bucks in yeah. the world yeah and that was okay if the student aid is not going to start till i start classes then we have this much time that we need to have money for food mm-hmm. and which means we have two hundred dollars to buy furniture right now right and we had some plans about that. You know, we weren't just totally winging it. Obviously, we had thought about it. We had looked up where IKEA was. We didn't have internet yet, although internet was, I think, provided by Columbia, which was nice. Right. We just had to get it set up. Right. Which, of course, takes a few days. So we had, like, you had a laptop and I had a desktop at that time. So that wasn't even super usable. And then we had to find our way to the Ikea in Brooklyn, which is a hike even if you know how to get there. (laughs) Right. And the reason that we needed to go do this mission the same day was that we knew, and we had just been told, in order for them to actually give you a home hemo machine to take home, the requirement was you had to have seating to dialyze in and a cart or shelf to hold the machine. Yes. So we needed a piece of furniture that satisfied that requirement so that you could have the machine. Right. And that was unusual. And I think one of the main things that we hadn't quite been aware of when we moved, because in Seattle, they provided you with a chair. And in New York, I don't know what they do now, but at the time, you know, second patient, they hadn't figured that out or decided to do that yet. So the plan was, let's buy a couch so that we have a place to sit Mm -hmm. and a little, some kind of table or cart for the machine. Right. That was our plan. And so... (laughs) So sometime in the early evening, and we had to have this because the people in the home unit at the Columbia Dialysis Center were going to come visit our apartment either the next day or the day after to basically officially approve it as a location that we could do 
home hemodialysis. And so we had to have appropriate furniture and a space that would work. And we were pretty sure we had a space that would work. We just needed the appropriate furniture. So we went out to Ikea with our plan in mind, and we started going to the places we knew we needed to go. And we found a cart that would work for you pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. That was pretty easy. And then we started looking at the couches that were available that night that mm -hmm. we could afford. Yeah. And this is where the plan that we had in mind went a little off the rails. <laughs> because I will remind everyone that I had gotten on a red-eye flight the night before. Right. Not really slept. Gone to the hospital that morning. Signed a bunch of housing papers, gotten moved in, schlepped out to the Ikea in Brooklyn. I was very tired. You were very tired and very sick. Mm -hmm. And we looked at the one couch we'd be able to afford and take home that day. Yes, that we had looked at online previously and said, this is this probably work. And in person, it was so ugly. <laughs> and I'd had all these emotions, like I've, I've moved a continent away from my family for the first time. I'm going to be starting an Ivy League law school in a week. I have had no sleep. I am running back and forth trying to do everything I can for my disabled partner. And that couch is so ugly. Right there in the middle of Ikea, I started to cry. Yeah, it was not a good moment. And we just, we barely discussed it. We just looked at it and it was like, oh, this is terrible. And you started crying. And I think I had this thing like, no, but we have to have a couch. Like, we, we have to. and We have to buy this ugly couch with our last to. bit of money. And <laughs> you were devastated, and I was certainly not thrilled. And so then we kind of regrouped, and we said, okay, what do we really need? And we thought, well, we actually just need a place to sit, at least for right now. I need something that I can dialyze in, and you shouldn't have to sit on the floor. So a couch works, or maybe there's like chairs that we could get, and that might actually even be cheaper. So we went over to the chair section and managed to figure out what I think ultimately was a far better solution. We got you a fairly simple, straightforward chair that was going to be your desk chair when we got you a desk. Right. Eventually, we're going to need that. Let's get that now. Right. And that's a pretty affordable little item. And then we got me, I think, their bottom-end reclinable chair. Right. It was a nice but cheap leather recliner. Yes. I'm not sure it's even real leather, but that doesn't matter. Oh, almost certainly not. <laughs> um, and part of the thing with, with the covering, too, is that fabric wasn't a good idea. It needed to be sort of leather or fake leather or plastic or something because occasionally I might bleed on it. And we were going to need to rub it down with diluted bleach regularly or occasionally. And so we didn't want to spend, you know, a ton of money on it anyway for that reason. But it should also have been a thing that was durable against that kind of thing. So we found this thing. It had a, a cheap ottoman that went with it. It reclined, which was even better than a couch. Oh, my goodness. It was such an amazing solution. We were so, so happy with ourselves <laughs> Not just in relief that we didn't have to have the ugly couch, but because we actually had, oh, this is a reclinable chair that I can put my arm on and it will work very well. It's still not as ideal in some ways as the medical recliner that they used, which comes with its own like fold up trays that you can put medical supplies on and stuff, but that would work. We figured that out. And so we got those two things 
And I think maybe we had a little time and we needed to indulge in fantasy a little bit. So we also, we wandered around and just looked at, well, maybe someday we could get this couch. And maybe someday when our TV arrives, we could get this thing for it to go on. And these desks look kind of nice. And we, we knew that in a few weeks when some of the other money came in, I was going to buy some other things for the house. So we kind of looked at some of those things and we're like, wouldn't this be wonderful? And then we got our stuff, arranged to have it shipped or delivered to us the next day and went home and collapsed on our amazing air mattress. Right. And when I started law school the next week, the furniture we had was that air mattress, Mm -hmm. my desk chair for the desk I did not own, and your dialysis recliner. Right. And the first few weeks of law school, I would wake up on the air mattress, get my clothes together, go to classes with people who wore suits to school. Yes. (laughs) And come home to find you assembling whatever furniture we had ordered with the financial aid money that was dribbling in. Yeah. And then after I got home, you would start home dialysis. Yeah, those first few weeks, <laughs> it's still very weird to think about. Those first few weeks, I went to Ikea, I don't know, every other day sometimes. Maybe not that frequently. But I would go up to Columbia and do my home dialysis there to prove that I still knew how to do it. We had had the home visit from several nurses. I think actually it only needed to be the one, but three or four of them came because they were excited about seeing what kind of apartments Columbia gave to people. And then they were really complimentary. Oh, this is so nice. And it has this. And it's got the east facing windows. Or I, I don't know. I am terrible about architecture things that people are supposed to like. And they were, they were jealous of the pre-war building and our bathroom was a, a marvel <laughs> because it was. But when they came, we still just had air mattress, two chairs. And I was pointing out like, and over here, I'll have shelving for the supplies. And this is where the boxes will go. And they went, oh, yeah, that'll totally work. And then they spent like 20 more minutes wandering around going, ooh, this is neat. and This is nice, too. So that was that was fun. And um, so, like I was saying, I would go. I would have dialysis in the morning. I would come back and either go to Ikea or work on assembling something else. Eventually, I think after a month, we finally had about everything. We had a couch. We had a thing to put a TV on. I had a shelving unit that I had chosen that was easy to sanitize that I could store all my medical supplies on. I had uh, an awesome cart that the dialysis machine could be stored on and roll back and forth from its storage place to right by the chair. Had all that figured out. We had desks. We had a bed. We had all the things that we needed. And (laughs) I had assembled all of them um, and done dialysis. And we were kind of rolling. And you were involved in the very heavy work of being a law student at, you know, a crazy hard law school. Yeah, it's kind of fun because, you know, everybody has that story about I came to New York City with a dime and a dream, and, I, <laughs> and we have one too. Mm-hmm. I had a dream of doing dialysis at home. And I think that's where we're going to leave the story for now. Okay. And for listener mail, mm-hmm. I have a, a few emails I got from your mother. You don't say. A couple episodes ago, we talked about her transplant experience. Yes. 
<laughs> Does she have some corrections? She she mentioned it, you know, the podcast is excellent as always, but Ari's memory of history is a little sketchy. No surprise. Yeah, no kidding. So she just clarified because you had said that she had to be on dialysis for a while so her kidney function could get to the level it needed to be for a transplant. Right, okay. And she says that's not true, that oh. when she started dialysis, it was already at the level it needed to be to be on the transplant list. Hmm. And she said that her brother Raymond called at Thanksgiving to offer his kidney to her. Okay, all right. And that the testing and scheduling issues meant that the surgery had to be on July 15th, which was shortly before our move to New York. We went down there to see them and then... Yeah, I think we moved on August 1st. And then in a separate email, she sent me another very, very important correction. Okay. Which was that several episodes ago now, we mentioned a couch that we had in Seattle, the <laughs> the couch of horrors. Yes, the couch, <laughs> right? But the tank, yeah. And you said that it had belonged to either your grandmother or your great-grandmother. Yes, my great-grandmother. Your mother emailed to correct you and said that the couch actually belonged to family friends of theirs. Huh. That your recliner that you had at the time belonged to your grandmother, Sylvia. Oh, yeah, my, my great-grandmother, Sylvia. And I think it's just very, very important that we set the record straight because I would never want to pin that couch <laughs> on someone who didn't deserve it. That is uh, an excellent point. So your your great-grandmother's honor is restored. That was not her couch. That's right. And for all those of you who are listening to this to help understand your disease or how to n navigate chronic illness, please rest assured that that couch did not belong to my great-grandmother, as I previously said. <laughs> and to wrap up, I'm going to ask my traditional last question. Okay. Ari, how are you feeling this week? Well, I was thinking about this because I, I listen to our podcast when it comes out every week. I, I anxiously await its release. And I've been noticing that. I've been saying, oh, I'm really exhausted. And that remains to be true. You know, teaching is, is a hard, exhausting job. Also, sometime last week or maybe the week before, um, I definitely got a little sick. I've been pushing through and it's not major, but I'm stuffed up and a little headachy in that way that one is when you get a little bit of um, sort of unnameable crud, probably a cold. When I get sick with a cold, you know, it'll last for a week or two as opposed to your average healthy human who is a little under the weather for about three days, maybe. So that's not fun. Sort of related, but sort of not. I had a flu shot a few days ago, so I am hopefully prepped to fight that off this year. Right. And a reminder to everyone listening, go get your flu shots. And other vaccinations as well, uh, because they prevent people like me from getting really, really, really sick. This is also semi-related, and I don't really know where else we would talk about it, but sort of since we're doing currently in Ari's health, as opposed to, you know, historically in Ari's health, the flu shot I got was at an appointment with a liver specialist who I, you know, I've seen liver specialists every once in a while, even though I am a kidney patient, because for the last couple of years, it turns out, I hadn't known this until last spring or so, my liver numbers have been slightly but noticeably elevated. And if you have like elevated numbers once or twice, they kind of go, well, let's see what happens. But because it had been consistent for um, a while, 
they called me last spring and said, hey, we think you should see a liver specialist. Probably no big deal, but it's the kind of thing that could be. So I went and saw her. Um, she was great. They took some more tests, and we kind of agreed that we would see what happened with that. Those numbers were consistent with the previous ones. And then I had labs at the end of the summer when I saw my nephrologist. And the most recent labs then, which was what we were looking at, had not quite normal, but the best numbers I've had in like two years in terms of liver function. And so she went, well, now I don't know. And it's the kind of thing where I'm still relatively young. My liver function is fine. But because, as she explained to me, and this was interesting anyway, that the liver is a kind of organ that is really good at repairing itself. But in the process of repairing itself, if it has to, it gets scarred or creates scarring on itself. And so when it has to repair itself over and over and over and over again, then it becomes highly scarred, and that's what we call cirrhosis. And when you have cirrhosis, then that's bad. And so since I am relatively young and I already have some numbers that would indicate maybe it's damaged or getting damaged or something and having to repair itself, we want to be pretty aggressive now in determining what it is that's causing those problems and you know, if anything, and what we could do to adjust for it or fix it or something. So because I had these confusing, all of a sudden better numbers, we're going to see soonish again, what they look like. And then we're going to talk about maybe having a liver biopsy, which um, will not be like that crazy one I had without anesthesia. Uh, she looked at those results, which was very interesting for her, but those were like 12 years ago. So not super relevant to today. And so um, that's kind of where that is. It was like, probably this is nothing, but it could maybe the teeny bit start of something that could be a problem in 30 years, so we want to do something now. And I appreciate that kind of thinking. Uh, it was yet another like really positive experience with a really smart, competent, friendly doctor at Columbia. Like I said, you know, when we sort of chose Columbia it was mostly because of insurance, and they were the people doing home hemo. You know, there are several famous hospitals in New York, and I was sort of excited to get to go to one. <laughs> and it's was, even though it started with mostly kind of happenstance, um, I've been really, really happy with care that I have and continue to receive there. So they get my five-star recommendation in case anybody needs one. And um, that's just kind of where we are um, with that little extra aspect of my health. It's one of those, here's another thing that sometimes comes up for me. Yeah, and these things come up not infrequently. Yeah, once a year, every other year, something like that. There's some weird thing that we need to get checked out that probably nothing, but we need to get it checked out. Yeah, and it's almost always nothing, but sometimes it isn't. So I'm cool with that. If you want to listen to episodes of the Kidney Cast. We're on iTunes and Stitcher. All the episodes are available on my website with show notes. So that's lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook, facebook.com slash kidneycast, Twitter at kidneycast. And if you have a question or comment for the podcast, please send it to us at kidneycast at gmail.com. Yeah, we really like getting questions to answer. Ari, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you to everyone for listening. 